and welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. I'm Jen. And I'm Eli. And this week we are continuing our dig into the infilled poltergeist. Hello there. Before we get started on the episode, still a little bit of business here in case people don't listen to the end of it where we sit and ramble for a long time. But we've got our Halloween uh, listener stories coming up. So submit your stories to us. They can be ones that you've written yourself and you record yourself saying them. It could be something that you just find really cool on Reddit or Creepypasta or something like that. And record yourself reading it. Email it to us at umpnormalcy at gmail.com. And we will have it on the episode. We've gotten four submissions but I have also learned that the guys at Grognostics are writing us up a story. So, <laughs> Mr. Grogsters, I love those guys. So we'll see what we get from them. Oh, and also don't forget about our live Halloween night. Oh, yeah, we're, we're going to go live. We got people getting all dressed up like Amy and Chad and, and I think Dave. But I think Dave's going to be like a caveman. Is that right? No. No? I'm going to be... The hitchhiker of Rehoboth. Oh <laughs> shit! And can I just can I just dress as uh, the creature that I think did all the damage in the Outlook Pass? So you're gonna come in here just looking normal? Uh huh. Just like <laughs> just like a Russian government no, official. I'm gonna wear a, I'm gonna wear a little 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 name tag that says I'm a monster. He's a monster. Gear. Not the gumdrop buttons. But be hey. sure to go to Facebook and join our Facebook group if you want to catch us live. All right, so on to the infield. Donkey. When we left the Hodgson family, Peggy Hodgson had just collapsed out of pure exhaustion. <laughs> and her children were moved into another home, allowing Peggy time to rest and recuperate. It had now been almost three months of near nonstop attacks and activity. From Legos being launched to them to heavy iron fireplaces being ripped from the wall. We also can't forget about the continuous knocking that kept the family up all night long. But we had finally made contact with the spirit by questions and having it knock in response. So let's pick back up where we left off and find out just what this poltergeist has in store for the family. A few days after Peggy's collapse... Guy Playfair was able to get in contact with a sympathetic psychiatrist who was very interested in taking a look at Janet in this case. Only problem was Janet would need to be admitted to Dr. Peter Fenwick's hospital ward at Maldsey Hospital in South London. Oh, no. In order to do that, he would need a letter from her general practitioner referring her there. This would have to wait because for the time being, they were unable to visit the children who were in a council care home. Not to mention, he would have to get Peggy Hodgson on board as well. Considering her experience with psychiatrists in the past, it might take some persuasion. Which it did, but she finally agreed that it would be what was be in the best interest of Janet. She also agreed to allow another medium to come see her. The medium was Elizabeth Fuller and her American author husband, John G. Fuller, whom Playfair had met when he was investigating in Brazil. Playfair met them at, the ho- at their hotel and began to give them an outline of the case without mentioning any names at all except Enfield. The Hodgson's real names and real address had not been given or had not been published anywhere at the time. John interrupted him and informed him that it was better that he didn't tell her anything at all. She worked better that way. He then asked if Playfair had brought an object from the house. Playfair handed Elizabeth his notebook, which she held without opening it. Green Street, 
Who is Margaret? She asked, startling Playfair. Then she continued. I can see a house. It's brick built. With white trim and a green door. This was a correct description of the Hodgson's home. She then seemed to stray, producing the string of names and objects that Playfair couldn't identify. Identify. John made notes of all of her statements. Playfair then took them to the house. However, while inside, she drew a total blank and said so at once. I wonder what the objects were. Deal Could days. they have been used condoms? <laughs> we went down the same street on that one. She's generally. going mega blocks, uh, brick marbles. <laughs> There's nothing here at all. Not a thing. She said firmly. They then went a few doors down to the Burkhams to have a chat with Peggy, who was still resting. Elizabeth informed her that there was, there were none of the entities she could often sense anywhere around. Playfair made a note that there very well may have not been anything there that night of November 23rd because the children had been away at the council home many miles away. But three days later, they returned. By that time, the Foolers had already left London. The night before the family returned to the home, Vic and Peggy Nottingham were awoken at two in the morning by a violent outburst of knocking coming from the Hodgson's home, which was completely empty at the time. The afternoon of November 26th, the children arrived from their council home and went straight to the Burkhams. And no sooner were the family united than the activities started right back up. Knocks were coming from the kitchen. Denise Burkham went to the, into the bathroom and found that the toothpaste had been smeared all over the family's toothbrushes. Then a plate of food that Janet was eating was thrown from the coffee table to the floor. Oh, no. And then John Burkham himself was chucked out of his chair onto the carpet. Gross witness these things happen. John said, I was pulled rather than pushed by some sort of compressed air. Like an arm splint, if you know what I mean. I was sent forward, twisted around, anti-clockwise, and dumped quite hard on the floor facing the chair I had been in. His son Paul immediately took a picture of his astonished father. When Playfair arrived at the Burkhome home, he urged Peggy Hodgins to keep the girls apart, since it was becoming clear that the poltergeist was still around. She agreed, although was reluctant. She took Janet home and left Margaret and Billy to stay with the Burkhomes that night. Gross and Playfair split up that night, wanting to see if it made a difference to keep the girls apart. It did, but not in the way that they had hoped. Playfair stayed at the Burke homes with Margaret and Billy, and Gross went with Peggy and Janet. After Billy fell asleep, Playfair began having a chat with Margaret, asking if anything happened while they were away. She said that one or two things had happened while they were there. The wardrobe shook and the cupboard fell over, and Janet and I got our bed covers pulled, Margaret told Playfair. Interesting enough, Gross had called the home and asked if the girls were doing all right, and were told by one of the nuns, Of course. Why shouldn't they be? She was rather stern about it. Playfair went downstairs for a bit, but as soon as he did, Margaret's ragdoll shot across the room. It just jumped and went, she told him. He returned the doll to her bed and went back downstairs. When he returned to the room, the doll was back on the other side of the room. But Margaret said nothing and neither did he. While standing in the front of her bed, checking to see if she was asleep, 
He heard the sh- a shaking coming from the drawers behind him. Oh, that's like what we had at the home. Margaret opened her eyes and said to him, It's a wobbly bit of furniture. Look, it shakes when I stamp on the floor. Playfair said and then stomped, but the drawers didn't shake or wobble. Then a few minutes later, it made the sound again. He didn't have time to inspect it because Peggy had suddenly appeared in the doorway with a desperate look on her face. Janet's having another one of those things. I had a feeling this would happen. I thought I'd let you know, she said quietly. Then they could hear screams coming from six houses away, although the windows in both houses were shut. Playfair and Peggy rushed back to the Hodgson's house to find Janet, Maurice Gross, and Graham Morris looking as if they'd just finished a wrestling match. Janet had given Maurice a couple of blows, and he was holding her arms while Graham had his arms around both of her legs. Graham had come with a carload of equipment to try to photograph Janet as she was thrown out of bed and walked into the middle of a violent scene. Janet was screaming in a way that they had never heard anyone scream before. She writhed on her bed, her face twisted into a mask of diabolical ugliness. In between her screams, she would attempt to bite Gross's arms and then whimper like a little girl half her age. Mommy! 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 She wailed over and over again. Her mother was right beside her. Playfair stated that he had never seen Peggy Hodgson so upset before. She had only just recovered from her breakdown, and he was afraid hurt for her more than for Janet. It tears a mother apart inside to see this, she said softly. They decided they needed to call in a doctor to take a look at Janet. Peggy Nottingham went next door and called for an emergency service. When the doctor arrived, he looked at Janet without a- apparent interest. He gave her an injection of 10 milligrams of Valium, and the doctor's report read, Complaint in history. Aggressive. Non-communicating. Relative clinical findings. Violent tendencies. Diagnosis. Schizophrenia. Before I go on, schizophrenia is very rarely ever diagnosed that young in, in a person. <laughs> Even this early in time? I, this early in time, I don't know. I don't, but... Schizophrenia doesn't usually even have its onsets until late teen years. Yeah, true. So when I read that, I was like, okay. Now we are at the very beginning ages of psychology, so it very well could have been something they did all the time. But yeah, when I read that, I was just like, that's not an adequate diagnosis. The doctors then left without making any other suggestions. They assumed the dose of Valium that Janet had received would send her to sleep. So they all went downstairs. At 11.55 p.m., there was a crash from upstairs. To everyone's astonishment, there was Janet in the exact position Pet Miss Hodgson's had described before, on top of the radio set in the corner, kneeling with her head flopped forward. Graham Morris took a photo of her. Then Gross and John Burcombe lifted her down and with some difficulty put her back in bed. She whimpered faintly but seemed to be fast asleep. Now we have a picture of this that we're going to put on our social media, so... Oh, yeah, we, we, I found a lot of pictures of this infilled stuff. The following night, it happened again, although her fit lasted two hours and 40 minutes, and she was less violent and easier to control. She was screaming less and crying more, calling for her mummy. Peggy told Playfair that Janet always called her mum, never mummy. Janet then got out of bed and began wandering around, her arms outstretched, her eyes shut tightly. Playfair forced one of them 
and shined a light into it. But she was moving too much for him to see her pu- see if her pupil contracted her at all. Where's Cobra? He'll kill you, Janet said suddenly. Oh my God! Isn't that the name of those mediums mentioned? Peggy asked. The name they actually mentioned was Gozer, not Gober, but close. No, he won't kill anybody. I'm not interested in him. I'm interested in you. And in Janet. And I want to know who you are. What you are doing in Janet's body and what you want. We'll help you. We've got friends who can find your mummy for you. Playfair said. Mummy! Mummy! Was all Janet replied. At the same time, Margaret was complaining that it felt like someone was sticking pins into her. Janet calmed down once or twice, long enough that everyone thought she was asleep. But every time that Playfair and Morris would leave the room, there would be a thump on the floor, and they would rush back into the room to find Janet sprawled out on the floor. Graham had set up his camera so that every time he would press his remote switch, every time they left the room, what they caught was hard to explain. Photos taken at about one-fifth of a second intervals showed two pillows moving across the room in different directions. They also showed the two girls with three of their four hands under the sheets. One shows Margaret pointing straight up while calling for them right outside the door, and one shows Janet's sheets moving down the bed away from her while she remains motionless. The last shows Janet and Margaret falling out of bed as if both girls had been spun around in some kind of whirlpool of air. When the activity hadn't calmed down by midnight, Peggy asked her brother to call a doctor. This one examined Janet much more thoroughly, finding her temperature, blood pressure, and pulse to be normal. She was, however, disoriented. His diagnosis was hysteria. The doctor left some Ativan pills to be taken as needed. The next morning, Janet went into a very violent trance the moment she woke up. Peggy rushed next door and had Peggy Nottingham call an ambulance, and then called Gross. Janet was taken to the local hospital and examined by a young psychiatrist who refused to allow Gross to see her. I suggest you try and avoid getting her involved in any type of hysterical situation, he told Gross. He was Irish. (laughs) Gross saw no need to try to discuss the matter any further, but John Burcombe was annoyed by what he thought was a silly remark made by a psychiatrist. Look, mate, my niece may be normal, but what has been going on lately is definitely not normal, he said angrily. The psychiatrist looked very uncomfortable. He then told Burkholm that he thought that Janet should be admitted to the hospital, just a minute after he had said that she should go home. Both Gross and Burkholm had gotten the impression that the psychiatrist didn't have a clue what was going on with Janet, and really seemed to show no interest in finding out what it was. They both decided that it was best for Janet to go home so they could keep an eye on her. In three days, Janet had been given three different diagnoses. And yet, the minute she got home, she went off on yet another violent trance. They gave her a heavy dose of Ativan to calm her down, and when Gross got there, she was sleeping fitfully on the sofa. He carried her upstairs to bed, where she again started calling out, Mommy! Mommy! By 11 p.m. that night, Janet had calmed down, so Gross went downstairs. About 15 minutes later, there was a thud on the floor. 
They hurried back upstairs to see what was happening this time. Margaret and Billy were sound asleep, and Janet had completely disappeared. (gasps) Where did she go? Gross wondered if he was seeing things, or rather, not seeing things. Then, as the thought had struck him that she had dematerialized, he heard a faint sound coming from under the double bed. He bent down to look, and there was Janet, wedged twightly between the metal mattress support and the floor, laying face down. Gross had a hard time getting her out. She was totally limp. When he got her back into bed, he forced one of her eyes open and shined his light into it. The eye of a conscious person will normally contract its pupil to avoid the bright light, but Janet showed no reaction at all. Before he made it back downstairs, the same thing happened again. After midnight, Gross thought the poltergeist was through for the day. Both Janet and her mattresses were shot into the floor, and 20 minutes after she was found in the corner by the door, having apparently been thrown a distance of about 14 feet. The next morning, Playfair met up with a couple of old friends from Brazil who were in town on their way to Germany. Luis Gasparetto and Elsie Bubagras. After hearing about Janet and her story, they decided they needed to head that way immediately. They arrived at the Hodgson's at, er, at 4.55 p.m. November 29th 1977. Janet was lying on the sofa, clutching one of her orange pillows. Heavily sedated, she had been in and out of trance and restless sleep ever since returning home from the hospital. So, you've got an entity that's trying to attach itself to this girl and possess her. So the best thing they can come up with is heavily sedating her to what? Make it easier? Keeping her from throwing her fits and hurting herself or somebody else. Yeah, but in turn, making it easy for... (laughs) Yeah. Foreshadow, foreshadow, foreshadow. (laughs) Louise and Elsie Elsie, got to work without taking off their coats. Louise began making passes around Janet's body as she lay on the sofa. Elsie set Peggy in a chair and did the same for her. Janet made feeble attempts to hit Louise, but seemed to have no strength. He took her hand and sat beside her in total silence for about 15 minutes. For the first time in days, Janet seemed perfectly calm. The two said that they would like to go upstairs for a private session with their spiritual guides. Playfair followed them and watched as Louise took a few deep breaths, cleared his throat, and started going into trance. There was commotion downstairs. Playfair ran downstairs to find Janet having some kind of slow-motion fit on the floor, writhing and kicking at anything within reach. She slid underneath the huge oak dining table and tried to kick it over. Luis... Now, now, now let's, uh, let's point this out here that this table's been flipped multiple times. Yeah. And it shows that even right now in this state, Janet doesn't even have the strength to barely move it. Yeah, she couldn't even lift it off the floor at all. Yeah. So. Louise came downstairs and began to talk to Janet in Portuguese. And a few English words now and then. He sat on the floor and he held her down firmly. You want your mother? What is her name? Is the translation. He asked several times, but Janet just kept wailing. Mommy! Mommy! In a strange intonation. Elsie came in. She's speaking Portuguese. Listen, she's saying Mamia, just like a Brazilian child. <laughs> she's, a, well, she's one of those Italian pork, Portuguese. Uh, I was going for like... Uh, Italian Brazils. I was going for like a Miss Cleo thing. 
Listen, she say, Bobia! <laughs> Spicy meatballs and pizza! <laughs> it's no. me, Amario! <laughs> Louise then commanded, Hold! Hold! Hold strong! He explained later he was trying to persuade Janet to be strong and force the invading entity away. Janet continued to make whimpering noises. Then Louise shouted forcefully at her, All right! That's enough. You understand me perfectly. I'm ordering you to go out, go out, leave her now. After a few minutes, Janet was suddenly Janet again. She opened her eyes, saw Playfair, and gave him a weak smile of recognition, though she seemed unable to speak. While all of this was happening, Elsie was writing in Playfair's notebook. I see this child Janet, in the middle ages, a cruel and wanton woman who caused suffering to families of yeomen. Some of these seem to have come back, no to get even with her and the family. Oh my god. I love it. Best character yet. <laughs> the next morning Janet yeah, The next morning Janet began to draw while still not fully conscious, according to her mother. She took out a pad of paper and some felt-tip pens and drew nine drawings at great speed, giving the impression she was not consciously aware of what she was doing. Is this like automatic drawing? The drawings were not very nice. The first was a woman with blood pouring out of her throat and the name Wilkins written in large letters at the bottom of the page. The blood was slashed into the paper in red ink. The others were all the same blood themes, knives and death. One just consisting of the word blood written several times all over the page. Blood. Blood. Hopefully she, blood. Hopefully she got her point across. <laughs> I mean, Playfair asked Peggy. All she's saying, she's about to start menstruating. <laughs> Peggy Hodgson had presence of mind to remove each drawing as Janet made it and gave them to Gross later that day. Janet never saw them or knew anything about them. Playfair asked Peggy if she had known anybody by the name of Wilkins. Oh, yes. That was the couple who lived in the house before we moved in, she told him. It had been about 12 years before Janet was born. They didn't die in this house by any chance, did they? He did, yes. I don't know what he died from, but he did die in this house. Mrs. Wilkinson, Mrs. Wilkins died just after we moved here, in a flat up the road. Playfair asked if, if he knew the cause of Miss Wilkins' death. Yes, she had a tumor in her throat. In December 1977, the infill case reached its climax. Whoa, we're way <laughs> too immature for you to be using that word. <laughs> reached its heightened capability of expense. The first three months in retrospect had been in retrospect had been the warming up phase. In the middle of December, the poltergeist showed what it could really do. Some of the incidents became more violent. One day, the refrigerator lurched out from the wall, its door shooting open and slamming into the edge of the gas stove so hard that the door was dented. On another occasion, the huge double bed turned upside down, frame and all. At the same time, less violent things were also happening. The toilet would flush by itself. Coins would drop from the ceiling as if they had materialized midair. Cha-ching! And the poltergeist began bent to bend spoons. Okay, oh. so first of all, let's let's stay down here. First of all, the ghost is promoting cleanliness. Okay, and then flushes the toilet. That's more than some of my roommates. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my fucking god! <laughs> um, and also, the change falling from the roof. 
He's giving them money. Yeah. <gasps> and then the spinning spoons, maybe that's just a way for him to cringe his anger for people not flushing the fucking toilet. <laughs> I say, I've experienced toilets flushing on their own. That was something that I had happen in the last house that I lived in. The toilet would randomly just flush on its own. The girls kept getting flung out of bed, sometimes 10 times a night. They kept complaining that their beds were shaking and that the sheets and blankets were being pulled off. The pillows and the pillows snatched from under their heads. They also claimed that they were getting pinched, slapped, and stuck with needles. One night, while trying to persuade Margaret to resist being thrown out of bed, she cried out to Playfair that she was being slapped hard in the eye. Peggy gave a very vivid description of what she felt was being done to her while Playfair stood right in front of her. It just felt as though there's a great big hand going like that. She moved a hand across her leg above the blanket. Mm. And... You put your hand down there, and there's nothing. She then winced. You pinch me. You dare pinch me. You know, you are really, you really are the limit. Now go away. It's taking a fancy to my skirt. She explained. It's not hurting me. Just trying to torment me. To get me out of bed. In other words, trying to frighten me. But it won't succeed anymore, she went on. While she was describing this to Playfair, he laid his notebook down on the bed, well away from her foot and a good yard away from Margaret, who was on the other half of the bed. Then the notebook jumped off the spot where he had placed it, swishing through the air and landing on the floor about three feet away. On another occasion, while they were all in the kitchen, a whole pile of clothes hopped off the kitchen table and landed five feet away on the floor, still neatly folded. One morning, they had an incident occur that showed that maybe one of the entities in the house was trying to be helpful. Peggy wanted to get rid of the large dining table, which was far too big for the room, and wondered how she was going to get it out of the house. Just after the thought had passed through her mind, the table, which must have weighed well over 100 pounds, shot across the room tilted half over and came to rest wedged against the small table by the front window. Then Peggy noticed the table could be dismantled quite easily. It seemed to me as though it heard me say, heard me and said, right, we'll do it. She told him quite amused. Even through all she and the family had been through, she was still able to keep the funny side of things or was still able to see the funny side of things. On December, on December 2nd, Janet and Margaret decided to pop next door to see Peggy Nottingham. You ain't going and leaving me on my own. Oh, you go then. She uh, asked her if she's heard any noises or anything, Margaret told Janet. Janet left the house. 30 seconds later, there was a piercing scream and a clattering noise coming from the staircase. What's the matter? Did Peggy come in? Miss Hodgkins asked. Mom! Mom! Janet yelled, terrified. What's the matter? Peggy asked. Janet burst into tears, which was not like her at all. What happened? Peggy's front door, it opened, and it's on and oh! She wept. What's this one? No, Peggy's! I looked behind, and there was no one there, and it just shut! Janet screamed. Go get Mr. Gross. Janet, or Peggy told Margaret. I'm not going on my own. Billy, you go with her. Margaret left with her little brother. If right, the life out of me, Janet said. Is Peggy in? 
Miss Hodgson asked. No one's in. I looked in the front room and no one's there. Is that why you come in screaming? Yes. When I came in, someone lifted me upstairs and I come rolling down. I nearly fell down dead when that happened. Janet began to cry again. By this time, Gross had arrived. She told him. I knocked on the door loudly and the door opened and I I looked in and I said, is anybody there? And I looked behind the door and the door just shut on me and I come in and I come in and I got lifted up halfway upstairs and I come down again. Four days later, Denise Burcombe knocked on the Hodgson's door around 9.30 p.m. There was no reply, but she knew her father was there, so she knocked again. The curtain in the living room window pulled back and she saw Gross's face looking at her. Then, through the glass panel of the door, she clearly saw Gross walk upstairs, turn, and look at the door, then turn again and go up the staircase. Totally bewildered by why he would refuse to let her in, she knocked a third time. Miss Hodgson's came down from the bedroom and let her in. What's the matter with him? Who? Mr. Gross, why didn't he open the door? Mr. Gross? He's up in the bedroom with us. Denise looked as though she was about to faint. Denise looked as though she were about to faint. The third major event that happened the first week of December was by far the most complicated to date. At 1.20 p.m. December 3rd, Gross was in the living room, hoping he could leave soon when he heard a loud commotion coming from upstairs. Janet! Peggy screamed. Where is she? Janet was nowhere to be seen. Gross and Burcombe found her lying head downwards on the staircase, slowly sliding down it, apparently still half half asleep. I'm just picturing your kids. (laughs) (laughs) Like the cartoons when the flood comes in and the bed's washing away. (laughs) I will now play this recording. The door opened to let her out the door. Yeah. I was lonely. No. What happened? Tell me what happened. Oh. Tell me what happened. I was in bed asleep. Yeah. And all of a sudden I felt something pull me by the arms out yeah. big. Yeah. And I tripped over there and I went there. Yeah. And it lifted me up. And I saw the door opened and I went out the door and I come flying downstairs. And I see the door open. I was on my oh, side. Sorry, this way. I looked right, around. Come on, walk it up then. Come on, come on. Why don't you go to that area? And you know, I thought I heard footsteps. I wasn't sure. Well, fancy opening the door for it. Go out the door. <laughs> well, that's the biggest trick of the lot, huh? Ooh. 
Hey, my accent's not too far off for Peggy. No, don't, don't <laughs> she kind of sounds like a man. So, unless <laughs> Janet was able to jump from her room, open the door, close the door, and make it all the way to the stairs, there's no way she's making this shit up. Yeah, and her mom said that she tried to get up, but she couldn't. I mean, even if Margaret opened the door for her, I mean, that's that's a hell of a leap from that bedroom to that staircase. Yeah, it's around a corner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's it going to do next? Peggy asked. But she didn't have to wait long. Three minutes later, Janet again was pulled through the door. I saw the door open, and she was on her feet this time, and it seemed as though she was being pulled along the floor. Since December was all about the poltergeist and its new tricks, something else started to happen. Janet and Margaret started having what appeared to be shared dreams. During one such episode, they were both apparently asleep, and Margaret became agitated bouncing violently, violently up and down on her bed. Go away, you ten little things, running about destroying people's things, Margaret called out in her sleep. Playfair woke her up and asked, Are you all right? Yeah, what did you wake me up for? I'm sorry, but you were having a nasty dream, weren't you? Yes, those tables and chairs jumping, up, jumping about, trying to smash them into little bits, she told him. When Playfair had woken up Margaret, Janet, who was still asleep, started to cry out. Margaret, where are you? Where have you gone? These events happened a few more times, but started ending up with Margaret sitting up in her bed and being as though she were awake, but still in a trance state. So Gross decided to put a pencil in her hand and guide it to a sheet of paper. She wrote figures one to ten, which seemed to tie into the ten naughty things. Burkham asked who the ten things were, as Margaret, still asleep, reeled off the description. Number one is a baby. Number two is a little girl. Three is a big girl. Four is a very strong young girl, about fifteen. Five is a very old lady. Six is a young boy. Seven is getting on about eighteen. Eight is an old man. Number nine, I don't know what it is. He hasn't caught a face, and number ten has gone away. She suddenly exclaimed, Bill Wilkins! That took a strange turn at number nine. <laughs> and prior to that, it just kind of looked like a waiting line at McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret didn't know anything about Janet's drawings, in which Wilkins was written on it. Who's he? John Burkham asked. The man who died in the chair downstairs, Margaret replied. They had already known that Wilkins had died in the house, but they didn't know where or what from. It was several months later when Peggy learned that from a neighbor that Mr. Wilkins had in fact died where Margaret said he did, in the chair in the living room. Playfair decided to try hypnosis. Gross, on the other hand, was not so sure about that idea, claiming, It's very dangerous, especially with a child. Suppose you dig up some ghost or secondary personality or whatever, and you find you can't get rid of it. I know, but this is a dangerous case. We've seen that, and it could get worse. We've got to do something. We're the experts, remember? Oi, fuck off, mate. (laughs) Well, that is very ungentlemanly of you, sir. Sorry. Oi, could you please go to the restroom... Flush the fucking toilet. Flush the fucking toilet and yank on your tallywacker. 
I would be much obliged. Sir. All right, fuck off, mate. <laughs> so finally, everyone agreed. And on December 8th, Playfair brought along Dr. Ian Fletcher. Dr. Fletcher was the senior member of the SPR, as well as a doctor, surgeon, and experienced hypnotist. After 45 minutes, Janet was suitably relaxed, and he began his questioning. Now, what's been happening here? He began. I got slung out of me bed. What did you feel? Cold hands, round my stomach, arms and legs, different times. How were you lifted? On me back. Do you have any idea who might be causing all the trouble? Yes. Who? Me and me sister. Janet's answer startled startled everyone. Was this the confession? Why do you think it's you and your sister all to blame? Don't know. Who started it? None of us. At first it happened in my room when John was here. She went on to give a very accurate description of the early events, adding nothing to the evidence that they didn't already have. Dr. Fletcher tactfully steered the questions back to the cause of the trouble. An increase in unhappiness, she replied. Mm-hmm. She, experienced, or she explained that both she and Margaret were frightened of their father and that it was always worse on his weekly Saturday visits. Both the girls did their best to be out of the house when he was there. So I just want to butt in here right right quick and say that even under hypnosis, she's agreeing with my theory. Yeah. That their emotional states are causing this and they don't really understand why. Yep. Hmm. There were a few other things that were learned through the session. I won't go through the whole dialogue because one, I don't have the whole thing. And two, as stated in part one, the dialogue can be rather dull. But for instance... It was discovered that the girls don't seem to take much notice of Gross and Playfair, which was good because it was starting to get back to the family that the welfare psychiatrist figured that the trouble would stop if Gross and Playfair just left. Janet regarded them as part of the furniture rather than father substitutes. They also learned, although she did not believe she did believe in ghosts, she showed very little interest in them. A friend at school had told her about a f- funny thing it happening in his home, which sounded like minor poltergeist stuff. But, Clan- <clears throat> but Janet clearly knew very little about the subject and kept talking about polka, polka dice. Dr. Fletcher ended his session by suggesting that she have a good night's sleep and that she should try to resist the poltergeist. Did she want it to stop? I want it to stop by Christmas. I want to have a nice Christmas. Spoiler alert. It doesn't stop by Christmas. <laughs> Shortly after Dr. Flesher's visit, Peggy went to Janet's general practitioner and asked him for a referral to Maudsley Hospital. If you remember, that's where Dr. Fenwick had told Playfair that he would have a bed ready for Janet. Unfortunately, Peggy got the names confused and used the name Dr. Fletcher. And of course, they were unable to locate a Dr. Fletcher at the Maudsley and instead referred Janet to a local welfare psychiatrist. And it just so happened that this was the same psychiatrist who had sent John away, and Peggy wanted nothing to do with him. In early December, the team was joined by David Robertson, a student physicist physicist that Professor Hasted had promised to assign to the team. 
He was very he was a very welcome addition to the team and promptly moved into the Hodgson's home, staying for a whole week, day and night. His patience was soon rewarded. It was almost like the poltergeist knew that he was in a in the controversial field of paranormal metal building, because almost as soon as he moved in, metal began to bend all over the place. Playfair had asked the children to try to bend spoons. They had seen this done on TV, and it was a fun new game for them. On December 7th, after finishing breakfast, Playfair put a spoon in the middle of the table and asked Janet to bend it without touching. Janet, who was sitting next to him, turned half around in her chair and put her hands over her eyes. Just then, Peggy, who was at the stove, asked if he would like some more coffee. Thanks. Thanks. I wouldn't mind. He turned his head for just a second. When he looked back, the spoon was arched in the middle like a frightened cat. Janet hadn't touched it. Did you see that? He asked Peggy, who had been looking straight at them. I did, yes. And it felt that headache come and go just as it bent. He then handed the spoon to Janet and asked her to straighten it out. She went into the living room and sat back in the armchair. Her back was to the metal magazine rack. Playfair kept an eye on her, but nothing happened to the spoon which she held all the time in one hand. But he did notice that the side of the V-shaped magazine rack was almost flat on the shelf. Now, because he didn't see the rack before breakfast, he couldn't fully count it as paranormal. It could have been bent beforehand. But he did find it odd. Later, Peggy found another spoon bent in the drawer and seen a third spoon bend on its own. All three spoons were bent exactly the same way, and fit perfectly together. Now that's really interesting, actually. That they all were bent in the exact same way. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't just spoons that were bending, though. Remember that teapot Gross had reported dancing on the stove? Yeah. I'm a little teapot, short and stout. He is my handle, he is my spout. Well, that same teapot... The lid had arched upwards just as the spoons had done, to the point that it no longer fit on the teapot. I'm a useless teapot, <laughs> short and stout. <laughs> here is my bit cap, and here is my pout. So David Robertson decided to try to get some instrumental evidence of the force. He brought along an apparatus which consisted of a pulse counter connected to a strain a strain gauge on a strip of metal set up in such a way that any unidentified force acting on the metal would register on the pulse counter. David put the apparatus on the kitchen table and asked Janet to try to make the metal strip bend without touching it. She tried for about five minutes and then lost interest and turned away. As she did so, the small tin standing in the refrigerator jumped about two inches in the air. Gross witnessed this and noted that Janet was nowhere near the fridge and while this happened, De- David never took his eyes off the pulse counter and saw it register a sharp increase as the tin jumped. Either the metal strip had started oscillating on its own or else the counter was being influenced directly. David then asked the girls to go upstairs. As they went upstairs, the oscillation faded, picking up again as they walked directly overhead. He could think of nothing normal to explain this event, this effect. Now, didn't 
one of the mediums come in and say there was something within their auras? Yes. Which do you think that little machine could maybe pick that up? Possibly. Could also be picking up electromagnetic fields. Yeah, yeah. Encouraged by these encouraged by these observations, David set up a fully instrumental metal bending session using a three-channel chart recorder connected to two strain gauges embedded in a piece of metal alloy that was specifically made so that if bent manually, it would snap. He then asked Janet to try to make the metal bend without touching it. After running the machine for 20 minutes to make sure that it was in, in order and there were no electromagnetic interference, Aha. which would have registered on the recorder's third channel, for about two hours, during which time Janet's hands never came within less than six, or came within more than six inches of the metal. The two charts connected to it showed almost continuous deflection, while the third ran in a perfectly straight line. Then finally, the metal bent about 15 degrees and broke in two. Encouraged by these experiments, they decided to try to make contact with the thing in more a more satisfactory way than by knocking. On December 10th, 1977, they did just that. On December 10th, Gross and Playfair were joined by two psychologists from the SPR. They were Dr. John Belloff, head of the Edinburgh University Psychology Department, and Anita Gregory from North London Polytech, Polytechnic. Throughout the early evening, they kept hearing curious whistling and barking noises coming from Janet's general direction. Who let the dogs out? Who, who, who? Janet denied making these sounds on purpose, and her mother assured, her, or assured them that she'd never heard her whistle before. I'm not doing it. I can't make that noise. That's what we got when we were on our holiday, Janet told Playfair. Even so, the barking and whistling sound did sound rather phony. Said Doctor or and, and Doctor Bell, Belloff and Doc and Mrs. Gregory were not impressed at all by these noises, or the repeated falling out of bed. Shortly after midnight, Gross decided it was time to challenge the poltergeist to speak. They decided the poltergeist should have a name, so they decided to call him Charlie. Charlie, Charlie, Charlie. Want to go to Candy Mountain, Charlie? <laughs> You're the Banana King, Charlie. <laughs> Oh, God, where's my kidney? <laughs> Charlie, do you think you could make noises in the back room? Gross asked. Dr. Belloff and Miss Gregory were sitting in the back room discussing the case. Charlie couldn't or wouldn't, but Gross left the room, and there were two very loud barks, which Margaret assured him came from under Janet's bed. It didn't sound like vocal sounds you could expect from a 12-year-old. <laughs> Gross tried again. Here is that recording. Morris Gross. See if you can do that. 
Very good. Let me hear you say my name again. Come on, let me hear you say my name. It speaks. <laughs> oh, shit. I did not expect that. Hey, can you go back? Huh? Just, my name is Morris, and then start there. At the end? Yeah. Oh, I got the chills when that happened. Come on, my name's Morris. Let me hear you say it. Morris. That's fucking crazy, dude. <laughs> Morris. Gross then persuaded Charlie to say Dr. Belloff. Say Dr. Belloff. Come on, let me hear you say that. Come on, let's hear you say Dr. Belloff. Say, say Dr. Belloff. Now, if you squeak the bed, I can't hear you talking. Now, say Dr. Belloff. Come on. Come on, say it for me, Dr. Belloff. Dr. Belloff. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit, man. Now, the next bit I don't have a recording of, but we're going to work this out. We're going to do a reenactment. So. Jesus. Gross went on. Now can you tell me what your name is? Joe. <gasps> Joe. Gross pressed for a surname. Wilkins. That was very good indeed. I knew you would talk. And did you live in this house? Yes. How long did you live in this house? There was no reply. Gross repeated his question only to get a loud grunt and four knocks for his answer. <clears throat> Do you know you are dead? Shut up. Listen, Brother Joe. It's time you realized you are not alive. You are discarnate. You are dead. You are a ghost. You are a spirit. You are also wasting a lot of people's time, including your own. Why don't you move upward toward the light, where you will find people to help you, and give you what you were looking for. Get off this plane now, Playfair said. There was an ominous silence. Gross asked. Are you going away now, Joe? No. Listen, Joe, old sport. We would like to help you, but you've got to tell us what you want. We're not getting mad with you. I'm sorry for you because you're causing yourself a lot of trouble. And you're going to pay for all of this in the future. You're going to be made to suffer in exactly the way you've made all these innocent people suffer here. The sooner you realize that, 
the better for you. See, all we want to know is what you want, and we will give it to you, if we've got it. And if we haven't got it, we can't give it to you, can we? Okay? Are you with me so far? Playfair went on. Fuck up! I don't mind whether you believe me or not. Will you just think it over? Good night. Sleep well. Shit! Joe said as Playfair left the room. Then Janet spoke in her normal voice. Did you hear that? What he said? He said S-H-I-T. <laughs> she seemed reluctant to say the word. Dr. Beloff went into the bedroom. Come along, Joe. I've come a long way. Tell me something. Tell me what's troubling you. Tell me what's going on. You can talk. See what you can say. Apparently, Joe had nothing to say. Then Anita Gregory tried her luck, asking, Tell me how you are. <laughs> this is not the British. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how you are. Butter. Anita was undeterred and kept it up, or kept at it, but got no more responses. Before driving back to London, Dr. Beloff suggested that maybe they investigate into ventriloquism. Two days later, Playfair received a note from Anita Gregory and John Beloff, accompanied, accompanying the report that they had written jointly the morning after their visit to Enfield. Their opinion was that they believed the girls were playing tricks on them. Gross and Playfair knew that they weren't playing tricks on them, at least all of the time. On December 12th, they went back to battle. As soon as everyone was in bed, a halfpenny coin dropped from the ceiling and hit the floor very close to the recorder. Gross was in the room at the time and was certain nobody in the room had thrown it. Margaret's bed began shaking up and down. She was apparently asleep and said nothing. I wonder if they're just infested with leprechauns. <laughs> Very well could be. Fuck up. At the start of the second season, the season, <laughs> as the <laughs> episode two <laughs> of the curse of the infield of the infield house, and according to the legend, <laughs> at the start of the second session with the voices or the voice, Gross got nothing but silence, muffled grunts, or abuse. It didn't sound particularly malevolent, but Gross was told to shit off as though the speaker couldn't think of anything else to say. It refused refused to speak unless the door was closed. Gross continued and was able to get quite a long sentence to reply. They then got the name Bill instead of Joe. They discovered that Bill had lived in the house, rather that he was still living in the house, And he was 60 years old and had a dog called Gober the Ghost. Can you tell me why you keep shaking Janet's bed? Gross asked. I was sleeping here. Then why do you keep shaking it? Get Janet out. Now this is certainly what he seemed to be trying, considering how many times the girls had been removed from their beds. They tried to see if Janet and the voice could speak simultaneously. Since Bill had claimed to like music, they decided to have a sing-song and invited him to sing a song. Oh, yes. You're going to shit your pants scared. Bow, 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 the pup, check me down his tray. 
Now that sound is coming out of a 12-year-old little girl. You've heard her. Yeah. Little Janet. Row, 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 you about Get it out of fuck. They noticed that every time Bill would join in, Janet's voice would drop out. They asked Janet to try to interrupt Bill every time he spoke. She did every time Bill would, would end up stopping short. So they had some kind of connection between their two voices. Bill, when we spoke to you on Saturday night, you said your name was Joe. Was there something here on Saturday called Joe? Yes. Oh, there was. So there are two of you. No. Then. They had told the girls nothing about the shared dreams and the account of ten naughty things. What do all these men do? Janet asked in her normal voice. Sling furniture. Where do they sleep? Shut the fucking door. It sounded like a single word. Bill had an obsession with the door. and It let in air and germs, he explained. Why do you use bad language? Margaret asked. Fuck off, you. Bill replied. Oh, Margaret exclaimed. Why, 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 why do you like playing about with us? I like annoying you. Have you got ten dogs as well? No, sixty-eight. Bleeding hell, sixty-eight dogs! Janet exclaimed. She could be just really good actress, but the ability to switch back and forth between the voices was something that was a bit unnatural. Yeah, it's literally taken two different people on our podcast to do it. Yeah. Margaret asked if Bill meant to torment Peggy next door. Yes. I knock a bottle off her shelf. Margaret misheard her, or misheard him and asked, You learned an awful lot about her? No. I knocked a bottle off her shelf on the wall. Bill replied, speaking more slowly. Where do you all come from? Margaret asked. Why do you want? Janet replied in her normal voice. It seemed for a moment that she slipped up and replied in the wrong voice. But perhaps she just wanted Margaret's question. She wanted to hear Margaret's question correctly. Where did you all come from, those friends of yours? The graveyard. Oh, they're the graveyard. Oh. Where did the dogs come from? From the Holy Spirit. How long have you been in this house? Since August the 31st, I came to torment you. What have you come to torment us for? Is there a reason? I want some jazz music. Get me some now. Play that fuck. Oh. <laughs> the fo- then followed some disjointed sentence- or sequences, which Bill said he was going to eat all the chocolate up at Christmas, among other things. Why did you pick this house? Because I used to live here. Janet giggled. You did. Didn't you know that? Yes. I came from out the grave. You come from out the grave? Yes. And our bark. We're coming out the grave. We're, We're coming, coming out, out the, the grave. grave. Oh, Papa Sikula. We're, We're coming, coming out, out the, the grave. grave. <laughs> Why don't you go where all the other peop- dead people go? I don't believe in that. Why? What's so different about being up there? I'm not a heaven man. You're not a heaven man? What's... The voice interrupted Margaret and began to speak in bursts. 
My name is Bill Wilkins, and I come Durant Bart, and I'm 72 years old, and I have come here to see my family, but they are not here now. Bill again interrupted Margaret's next question with an angry outburst. You fucking old bitch! Shut up! I want some jazz music. Now go and give me some as I go burning. This was the old voice again. It was as if there were two people fighting over the same telephone, one grabbing the mouthpiece from the other. Margaret persisted and asked another question. What does it feel like to die? I didn't die, came an angry reply, followed by some more abuse and some phrases about jazz music. But they got nothing more that made any sense. Margaret said, I'm going to sleep now. Go away, you animal. I will now. But he failed to keep his word and kept on for another hour, making no sense at all. Eventually, they put Janet in the back room and stayed with her until she fell asleep. And that's where I will end part three. Wow, Black Betty. Wow, Black Betty. Black Betty got a job. Things are are getting crazy. So, Chad, how does your throat feel after just those few lines? It hurts. Janet would go on like that for hours and hours at a time. Say something that you normally say. I'm saying things like I normally say. Oh, shit. Okay, never mind. Okay. My voice wasn't really that gone. It is gone a little bit, though. But it hurt your throat. Oh, yeah, my throat's still hurt. My throat's burning Can right you now. imagine going from that back to your normal voice instantaneously? Ow, fuck. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Without coughing, without any kind of, like, adjustment whatsoever. They would actually eventually... I, I might cover this a little bit more in depth in part four or five, um, but they did bring in experts who showed what part of the throat that Janet was actually using to make these noises, And they said that if she was doing this herself, not only would she be hoarse and it would cause her to cough, it would, it would be very painful for her. And Janet never Um, had it. Check, check, and check. And Janet never had any problems going back and forth. And like I said, she would talk like this for hours and hours at a time. So, yeah. I mean, Chad here is proof that it's not an easy task. What if Janet was I'll, I'll use those voices all the time, and it still hurts to do it just for a little bit of time. Yeah. What if Janet was a real boy? <laughs> yeah, just imagine someone going from, Hello there. How are you, Janet? How are you? Okay. So, we have now gone from marbles and Legos to children and bedding being thrown. To now strange voices coming out of a 12-year-old little girl that sound like an angry old man. You should see what comes out of my butt. (laughs) We'll get to that. We haven't gotten that far yet. Um, So this case is really uh, picking up steam. And like I said, there's going to be at least five episodes. (sighs) I am 5,000 words, almost 5,000 words into part four, and I'm still got a lot to go. This could end up being our first six-parter. 
Um, uh, Blavatsky was five, right? Mm-hmm. Shit. Wait. Uh, Crowley was four. How did Cro- we fit all that in to Crowley in four episodes? Wasn't it? Because they were... Well, Crowley was five, but five. we were doing two to two and a half hour episodes. Yeah. I could make these longer episodes, I guess. And four, I might end up doing that with four. I might make four a much longer episode so that we can get it knocked out in five. Because, yeah, there's still a whole lot more to cover. And oh, wow. we're only in December. So what, August, September, October, November, December, four months of 18 months. There's a lot. And just a portion <laughs> of the thousands of incidents that these yeah. two investigators logged. They are very thorough in their work. Now, and, for those of you. We appreciate that. Now, for those of you who are like, God, this is still going, just think this family dealt with 18 months. Yes. And we're going to finish it up in like four weeks, <laughs> four or five weeks. So, yeah. I mean, I can only imagine being this family at this time. That's crazy. Uh, anybody have anything else they want to say about it before we close out? Have a good night. All right. Jazz music. Yeah, he liked jazz music. I'm not a jazz fan. Me and the ghost Fly me to the moon. No, that's not jazz. Damn it. Jazz doesn't normally have singing. Shit. Burp, 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 I mean, I guess you guys got some loose. Yeah, there, uh, there's, there's. You've got a. Uh, was it a? Uh, Armstrong. Uh, Louis Armstrong. Armstrong. And say, I see sky the blue, say, red got, roses too. Say, I've got a high school friend who's a jazz singer in New York who tours Europe and New York and all that all the time. Um, and anyway, make sure you go to our Facebook page, like our group, or join our group, like our page, follow our Instagram and our Twitter at UMP Normalcy. Check out our website at umpnormalcy.com. We've got awesome merchandise on there. Um, I'm going to do some more updates to the page here soon, put some more of the books on there, including this one, because I don't have this one on there yet. Um, And then, uh, again, if you've got a story, record yourself reading it and send it to us. We'd be more than happy to play it on the episode. And make sure to like our group or join our group so that we can see or you can see us live. On Halloween night. And if you'd rather us read your story, just type it on out and email it over to us or message us. Yeah. And if you've got a voice you want us to read it in, let us know. If you want us to read it in Janet's voice. Hello. Or if you want us to read it in uh, Maurice Gross's voice. Hello. Or if you want us to read it in the Poltergeist voice. I can read. (laughs) Hi. You might kill Chad if you do that one, though. No, I'll, I'll be fine. Wait, can, I, can I get a, a wah? A wah! <laughs> come on, come on, get down with the sickness. Come on, come on, get down with the sickness. Apparently, he got down with the sickness and died. Ooh, ah. <laughs> well, until next time. Keep digging. Keep digging. Oh, what fuck. a wonderful world.